0: Before we get started, a quick disclaimer: this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangeley Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, portfolio manager at Rangeley, and with me is always my co-host and Rangeley's founder, Chris Demuth. We generally try to talk more micro about specific companies and less macro about kind of general economic trends and politics and markets, but. Almost all of the headlines over the past couple of months have been dominated by a looming trade war between China and the United States or maybe the whole world versus the United States who knows at this point. This morning the US announced another 200 billion in tariffs on China and because of that it's been kind of a slow corporate news week. So we figured now was as good a time as any to talk about a trade war. So Chris, I'll turn it over to you. What do you think about the looming trade war here?
1: This is a big escalation this week when the there was the first round, kind of $50 billion-ish, there was some coordination and back-channel communication with Chinese who understood that it was in some ways a reaction to policies they had in the past, and they were going to be very careful in responding. At two hundred billion, first of all, it's a huge number. It is now a bigger number than the entirety of the Chinese imports from the U.S., meaning that they can no longer just quantitatively dollar for dollar respond. My understanding as of today on information and belief is that there is no back channel coordination kind of stick and carrot going on. So this is the Wild West. It's a little out of control. It's a little difficult for the Chinese to coordinate. The people who in the administration are most in favor of trade, Kudlow and the Treasury Secretary are a little bit cut out of this process here. And so they're relying on people in the private sector, out of the administration, people who have done a lot of work in China in the past, Steve Schwartzman, Hank Paulson, to kind of just ask, what is going on here and how are we supposed to respond?
0: Yeah, it, I think one thing you said there, there's been no back channel on everything. I, I think that's spot on. I mean, I don't know any specific like Chinese officials or anything, but reading the Wall Street Journal pieces this morning, it almost sounded like they were people when, I, when you see someone get really bad. Really unexpected news. They're just like, we don't know what we're going to do here. Like The 200 billion number, it is just so big and it came so suddenly. I don't know how they responded. The responses they're talking about, they're just so outside the normal types of diplomatic processes. It's crazy.
1: The proximate cause apparently came from Trump personally. And this is an area where constitutional powers really invest a lot of power in the president. Senators, including senators who have announced retirement, so they have a little bit more flexibility, are looking at each other to think, how can we react to this? And it's hard. I mean, elections matter. This guy's the president and he wanted to do this. I think the very proximate cause was frustration and humiliation over North Korea, that he looked a little silly. Mm -hmm. Uh, This great negotiator kind of started by giving the North Koreans everything they want, getting nothing in return, hoping that the Chinese would have his back. They, of course, have no particular reason to or concern about North Korea from their perspective. And so this was, I think, lashing out in response to that. I think the other thing that's
0: interesting is Trump has been so fluid on so many different policy points, mm-hmm. it not not just since he announced he was running for president, but over the past couple of decades. Mm-hmm. And I think the one thing that's really in particular, and we, uh, we were even looking back as early as like 1988, he was giving an interview to Oprah and there was a 1990 interview with Playboy where he was saying, I want trade wars. Like mm-hmm. the first thing I would do if I was in charge is I'd slap a tariff on every Mercedes-Benz coming into the country and every Japanese product coming to the country. And what is he tariffing? It, not Japan, but China. And he wants to do Automobile tariffs. So, this is the one thing he's been so consistent with. And what I think is so interesting is the stock market has, every time tariffs have gone on, or he said, I want a trade war, the stock market has been like, ho, ho, ha, ha, we're not going to have a trade war. Even today, you know, the stock market was down. 50 basis points, which is short term moves and all that. But it really does not seem the stock market believes that we're going to have a full out trade war. And we just keep escalating and escalating and escalating. And, you know, $200 billion of products with tariffs. That, that is a full out trade war at this Mm -hmm. point. We are, we are right on the doorstep and it does not seem anyone really believes that we're going to get one. And it's the one thing he's consistently said he wants.
1: He said that trade wars are good and that they're easy to win. And at every step of the way, he seems somewhat vexed that our trade partners are reacting. Yeah. I mean, he seems kind of a little bit almost hurt by it, which is exactly what anybody else would anticipate that, of course, they would do. It's just so funny, like, the
0: U.S. imports more products than we ship to you, so we're losing. It's such a, or I think you were saying this before we got on, it's such a zero-sum game. It's such a zero-sum view of the world. Like, there are huge benefits to trade. Like, ignoring the economic thing, there's also huge political benefits and benefits to the world. It's just so crazy to me. It's such a narrow-minded worldview, I think.
1: If if you have a trade deficit, you also have a stuff surplus. I mean, you could also complain, you know, about, uh, if if it was in another direction, how come we're sending so much stuff that just because they want it and all we get back is money. I mean, it's, it's it's presumably these are voluntary. I mean, we it is the head of state describing the aggregate number, but within that number are lots of voluntary transactions that are presumably good for both sides. And the important thing to think about is not the trade, but the comparative advantage. It's that everybody gets to do the uh, creation of goods and services that they're best situated to do compared to the competitors, and the US gets the good deal on a lot of this stuff. We get the safer Cleaner industries for the most part, and are shipping dirtier and more dangerous ones uh, elsewhere,
0: yeah, no, look I I a hundred percent agree with you there. I don't think we I think we are far from the only people who think that way. C-
1: could I could I jump on, the, ahead, on the on the on the zero sum game thought, which is that most advocates for free trade and more generally free market economics. Are advocates of it because of the idea of increasing the size of the pie. I think this image of what you're doing when you're providing goods and services is most clear when you're an inventor or creating something that just clearly would not otherwise exist. I mean, you know, when a businessman thinks of it as something that's his own, it's especially his own somehow. If it's something that he dreamed up and he brought into life, I would say that's always true in the market, but that's where it's most vividly so. If you look at how Trump personally got his start, so much of it was through dramatic leverage, kind of bluffing his way into huge loans and tax abatements in a world where in New York real estate, it really was a zero-sum game. There's only so many spaces for buying <laughs> If billions. I get this
0: tax abatement, you can't have it. And if you get it, I can't have it. So it's a fight to the death to get it. Yeah, and,
1: and so it's kind of instead of a meritocracy, it's sort of an exaggerationocracy. And he won that. Yeah, no, I hear you. And I think I think the other thing is Trump is a very visual person. Mm -hmm. And
0: when you see a 100 cars being made in Germany and shipped over here, you can physically see that there are jobs associated with it. And it's kind of there's these nefarious benefits for, oh, the the cars were created cheaper. It's tough to it's tough to really visualize that. But you can see the cars coming here. You can see the jobs that are producing the cars. So I do think there's something there. The the last thing I want to talk about here, you know, I, I think I was talking to you a little bit about this earlier. A, I wonder at what point this is too far gone, and B, we talked a little bit how the market seems to continually discount the possibility of a trade war. You know, stocks are really up so far this year, and since Trump became president, I kind of have had the view they are fully but fairly valued. I think some people look at cyclically adjusted earnings and thinks, hey, these are actually pretty overpriced stocks, but the market does seem to be really discounting the view of a trade war. What are the odds do you think of it sneaks up on the market? We have a trade war, and all of a sudden we're in a global recession, and stocks are down 10, 20. 20
1: 30%. Does that make sense? It's a lot higher than it was yesterday morning. One of the things that I'd been looking for, looking at, at whether or not we would have this escalation that we then did have last night, is the fact that there weren't actually anybody on the staff in the White House or in agencies identifying the specific underlying tariffs to have this huge expansion. Part of the problem when you're dealing with this head of state that's kind of a bit of a renegade, even within his White House, is that I had taken some comfort in the idea that talking to people in the White House, this wasn't actually being prepared for. Mm -hmm. Well, it wasn't being prepared for, but now it's happening. Uh, So I think it is unstable. I think the people in China who are responsible for reacting, the head of state and then the number two guy who deals with economics in particular are very careful. They're trying to be modulated. They're trying to not spin out of control. They're trying to coordinate with the People in the private sector in the US who are trying to preserve this relationship. And they're also reaching out to Europe to say, look, the US, if they want to isolate China, maybe the US is just going to end up. Isolating ourselves because they're going to be able to strengthen bilateral relationships with Europeans the way they've already done in Africa and in the Middle East. So it's a lot different than it was yesterday, but it could spin out of control. Really? Yeah. Good. No, I'm with you. So why don't we stop on China there? We'll leave it on
0: that dark, somber note. No, if okay, can you can just else, you go me,
1: ahead. Well, I Just to darken it slightly, what's really remarkable too is it's so discordant with how well some policies seem to be working, at least in the short term, on the tax reform and regulatory reform side. The economy is growing strongly. We've not launched a new offensive war. I mean, this has been probably the best combination of peace and prosperity to be entering into a first midterm election for a presidency since Eisenhower. Mm -hmm. And we are Giving back a lot of the peace dividend on international instability and giving back a lot or risking a lot of that economic growth that has, I think, could be given some credit from the tax reform and spending reform on and giving it all back on tariffs, which are taxes on the American consumer.
0: Yeah, no, I, I'm with you there. You know, I, I think that was a great last point. Why don't we Why don't we pause it there and we'll switch? Well, I wouldn't be surprised if we talk trade wars in the future. But why don't we switch over to something a little bit more fun since that was kind of dark? Just wanted to quickly mention there was a Wall Street Journal article: changes to Star Wars popular rewards card vexes traveler. I know both of us have kind of deep history with loyalty program. Mm-hmm. Uh, you actually mentioned a Marriott credit card offer earlier today that I I actually signed up for because it looks so good, and hopefully I'm going to be uh. Aware from here for New Year's using those points. So figured now was just as good a time as any to take a spin on the lighter side and turn over to Loyalty Programs Talk. So I'll, I'll send it over to you.
1: I have uh, some friends that are in town and we're meeting up at a midtown, pretty nice hotel lobby. And I said, oh, I'm going to have to be on my best behavior. I'm not used to people who spend all this money on these fancy hotels because I knew they were people who did. And, 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 and he wrote back kind of indignantly that not only had he gotten this through a hot wire, but it was via You Promise, And with $5 back, he was getting it for like $90, which for the rest of the country isn't particularly cheap, yeah. but for a nice hotel in, in Manhattan. Is. So I, I love these loyalty programs. It's kind of a fun market. The uh, Starwood Preferred was my third favorite card. It is now getting somewhat reduced, although Marriott has uh, 100,000 uh, 100, points. I was about to say $100,000. No, $100, quit the podcasting 100, 000, business. 100,000 points uh, worth probably a uh, $900 or so with a $95 a fee, but you're going to have to listen to this podcast fast because the uh, number of points goes down tomorrow. Yeah, I actually. think that deal expires <laughs>
0: tonight. No, uh you know, I think, So obviously we've got a history of the loyalty program. I do think there were some interesting things in this article I wanted to talk about. Sure. The the one that most jumped out to me was Marriott's changing the card. They're merging the SPG and Marriott programs. They're changing the SPG card. And the SPG card, you mentioned, was your third favorite. Mm -hmm. Uh, I used to be a consultant. And one of the first things when I joined the consulting world, people pulled me aside and were like, hey, you need to sign up for the SPG card right now. Because for super frequent travelers, Mm -hmm. SPG was known as a really good card. And the article mentioned several times, they're like, listen, I know we're changing the program. I know we're changing the points, but we think this is going to be really good for your everyday traveler. And what the article was saying was, it's not good for your super frequent traveler. They had all these quotes from frequent travelers who were like, these this is a disaster for me. I need to change my card. I'm gonna change my card. So it, it is kind of interesting as these loyalty programs merge, you know, maybe they're making it good for everyone else, but they're losing a very passionate and very profitable, profitable frequent traveler base. I don't know if you have any. It's, thoughts it's, there.
1: It seems like a mistake. I think that some industries are much better at following through and protecting the reputation when there is a kind of short term either a mistake or some situation that's not in their short-term interest. And I would think if I was in any kind of hospitality business or kind of consumer-facing business, eating a lot of those short-term pains to increase loyalty would generally be a good deal. But this is very much like if you look at the airlines, they cancel pricing mistakes, Mm -hmm. which I figure if I make a pricing mistake, that's that's a problem, but it's my problem. It's not my customer's problem. But they make it their customer's problem. And in this case, they're making uh, it their customer's problem that uh, the Starwood card is getting devalued. Um, It it really depends on what you want to. I mean, sales are good to spend less than a dollar for a dollar in value, but it's always more than spending zero. And so it really depends. I mean, very long distance upgrades to fly comfortably in business class or first class and pay coach-ish, although it ends up being a bit more than coach, subsidized with points tends to, in my experience, be the best kind of point value, but it doesn't work as well for just a pure cast substitute getting from point A to B and coach. Yeah.
0: And it was interesting in the article, people were actually saying there were lots of travelers who like, look, this is so good for if you take the points and use it for business class upgrades, especially in Europe, which obviously that's a high-end traveler who's talking about business class upgrades in Europe, whereas Merritt was kind like, yeah, we might not have as much of that, but it's going to be so good for your average consumer. You're going to get one free... One one free night at a lower rated yeah. hotel per year. Think of all that value, which, you know, that's value for the everyday consumer. So they're yeah. really taking this elite rewards program and changing it into more an everyday consumer program, which I think is very interesting to think about.
1: Which makes, yeah, I mean, my favorite is like go to fly first class to Australia via Singapore and stop in Singapore for a day. When otherwise, <laughs> Your one
0: percenter is really showing here. Singapore, <laughs> Asia, first class. Well,
1: just in terms in terms of like how much you can squeeze out Value, especially compared to what paying cash uh, would would be, but so so you're kind of loosening up the first strings from somebody, but you're still spending a significant amount of cash. It's just a lot less than it would be without the points, and they might. Rue the day that they go down market this way for people who are not looking for that same kind of thing, or or, or they want some kind of replacement product. There, that's the interest. I, I do wonder. Like, I
0: think there's an opportunity for someone to step in here and pick off all these high value, high frequency travelers. Whether that's a new loyalty program, a different hotel brand, it'll be interesting to see. Anyway, that's all the time we have for today. Before we hit our disclosures, a quick reminder: if you like this podcast, the best way to get more is to recommend us to a friend and to get them to start listening. I don't think we talked any specific companies. So no disclosures. I think we're both long loyalty programs. This was a little different podcast talking about it. And in hindsight, I think this is like the fourth time we've talked loyalty programs. So it is a frequent conversation. Yeah, cool. All right. We'll talk to you guys next week.